The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And it uh, experiences the results of good and bad actions. Now, although we might be tempted to agree with Sati, the Buddha replied, Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, have I not stated in many ways consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness? But you, misguided man, has misrepresented us by your wrong grasp, injured yourself, and stored up much demerit, for this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. So here we are, 2,500 years later, and poor old Sati, he's still got his wrong view, at least as far as we can tell. Then the, bhikkhus, then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. What do you think? Has Sati, the son of a fisherman, kindled even a spark of wisdom in this Dhamma and discipline? No, venerable sir. How could he have, venerable sir? When this was said, the bhikkhu Sati sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, head down, glum, and without response. Then knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. Bhikkhus, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me in the way that Sati explains it? No, venerable sir. You have stated many times that consciousness is dependently arisen. Good, bhikkhus. It is good that you understand that consciousness is dependently arisen. For consciousness is reckoned dependent upon the condition which causes it to arise. When consciousness arises dependent on I and forms, it is I consciousness. When it arises dependent on ear and sounds, it is ear consciousness. On nose and smell, nose consciousness, tongue and taste, taste consciousness, touch and tangibles, touch consciousness, mind and thoughts, mind consciousness. Just as a fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it burns, when a fire depend, burns dependent on logs, it is a log fire. When it depends dependent on faggots, a faggot fire. Dependent on grass, a grass fire. Dependent on cow dung, cow dung fire. Chaff, a chaff fire. Rubbish, a rubbish fire. So too consciousness is dependent upon the conditions that cause it to arise. So the Buddha is not saying that consciousness is a thing that's floating around. It's the result of sense contacts. And in particular, if it's at one of the sense doors, then you get that type of sense consciousness. Now this particular sutta shows signs of tampering. There are three parts to the sutta. And I've just given you part one the story of Sati and his pernicious view. Part two is a questionnaire on dependent origination. And the Buddha begins questioning the monks. He starts out by asking them, basically, do you understand this, that conditionality? This, that conditionality is with this as necessary condition that arises. With the ceasing of this necessary condition, that ceases. And they understand that. And then he goes on and on and on and on and on. Forward, backwards, recapitulation. And just discussing dependent origination in perhaps some of the most tedious parts of all of the Pali Canon. Uh, you should read it once, and then you uh, turn the pages quickly because it's just, it, it goes on. But after laying all of this out, and being very clear that the monks have a very clear understanding of dependent origination, or shall we say, as it has come down to us, I suspect that there was an original questionnaire, and over the years people got a little happier chanting and threw in 
a little more and a little more until it reached this tedious stage. But it probably sounds really good chanted in Pali. But clearly he's questioned the monks and he's got them, yeah, pretty well understanding dependent origination. And then he says, knowing and seeing in this way, that is in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past and ask, were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? Having been what, what did we become in the past? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future asking? Shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what, what shall we become in the future? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, are you inwardly perplexed about the present? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? No, venerable sir. Are you saying this because I'm your teacher? No, venerable (laughs) sir. Are you saying this because it comes from your own understood experience? Yes, venerable sir. It is good, monks, that you understand this from your own experience. So what the Buddha is saying is, don't think in terms of an entity that roams and wanders through incarnations. It's not your body. I think we got that one, right? It's not your thoughts and your emotions and your memories. It's not even your consciousness. All that there is, is dependently originated phenomena, rolling on. You can't find an entity anywhere in that. Our mistake is not that we are identifying with the wrong object. Our mistake is that we are identifying with any object. The act of identification is a mistake. There are just dependently originated phenomena rolling on. Now, if you look at dependent origination just as these 12 links, you can't quite see that. But if you look at it more in terms of one thing arises due to cause and conditions, and that thing that arose serves as cause and conditions for something else to arise, and that get the picture it's just rolling on this is what's going on and this sense of me the most important person in the universe is a mistaken view a misunderstanding that this mind-body process is simply the result of many conditions coming together The fact that I'm speaking to you in English is due to the fact that the British got over here, ran off the Dutch, ran off the French, ran off the Spanish. Their descendants wandered across the continent, ran off the Mexicans, and we're speaking English, right? I'm an English speaker due to causes and conditions, and we can actually trace these back. The fact that we're here today at all is due to the actions of the Buddha. You know, if after he'd gotten enlightened, he decided nobody can understand this, and he spent the next 45 years sitting under the tree enjoying the bliss of enlightenment, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Right? So lots of stuff has come together to make us who we are at this point in time. There's the genetic material. There's the cultural material. There's your family of origin, there's your education, there's your friends, your jobs. I mean, all of these things are coming together. The picture that occurs to me is a bunch of fire hoses, you know, and they're squirting up into the air. And these represent streams of dependently originated phenomena. And where they intersect, that's a being at that point. But the streams of dependent-originated phenomena don't stop there. They keep going. 
And furthermore, the being, so-called being, that has appeared as the intersection of these streams of dependent originated phenomena acts, that is, karma, and produces results, karmic resultants, which are also more streams of dependently originated phenomena. All these streams coming together, intersecting, making a being which adds to the streams of dependently originated phenomena. Furthermore, we share many of these streams. We share the speaking of English. We share the fact that the Buddha turned us on to this stuff. We share uh, a cultural heritage. We share living on the West Coast. We share, I mean, the list goes on and on. But there are a lot of things that we don't share. I sincerely doubt there's anyone in this room that shares the streams of dependently originated phenomena coming out of Leland High School in Leland, Mississippi in the 60s. All right, that's my stream. Well, and the other 58 people in my graduating class. And yeah, yeah, okay. And family of origin. I mean, unless you got brothers and sisters here, probably not sharing that. But you might be here with coworkers or other family members, so there's streams that are being shared. Right? So there are no unique streams. It's all not so much interconnected as interrelated. These streams coming together, making us who we are, and that's what's rolling on. There's no entity to be found. When you see that there's no entity to be found, you don't run back to the past and go, did I exist then or not? You don't worry about past lives. You see it's just streams of a dependently originated phenomena. And you don't run to the future. After I'm dead, what will I be then? You recognize it's just streams of dependently originated phenomena. In fact, you don't even ask, am I? Am I not? You see they're just these streams of dependently originated phenomena rolling on. This is what's happening. Nothing else. We think in terms of entities, in terms of nouns, but truth be told, it's all processes. There aren't really any nouns. Just some verbs are moving kind of slow. Right? But it's processes. And these processes are interrelated. This is what's happening. But our little pea brains can't take it all in. And so as a shortcut, and it works reasonably well, we take some of these interrelated processes and we separate them out. And then we can deal with the separated out pieces with our little pea brains. Of course, the most important piece we separated out is me. Right? And then we start thinking that this me is somehow separate from all the other me's that are running around, all the other things that are happening, whereas it's hugely interrelated. The picture that occurs to me is like you got the universe, right? And the universe pokes up an eyeball. Right? And it's looking around. Actually, it's got two eyeballs. It's got auditory devices as well. And it's a piece of the universe that is mobile. It can wander around on the surface of the universe. So you got your, your mobile sensing device. And the mobile sensing device has the capacity to look down and see itself. Oh, me! and makes the mistake of thinking that this mobile sensing device, which is only a piece of the universe, is somehow separate from the rest of the universe. But no, it's just a piece of the universe. The fact that it can wander around on the surface of the universe in no way makes it not a part of the universe, in no way separates it from the other parts of the universe. If you start examining just your body, 
you're not separate. I mean, you just all went and ate. How many of you grew all the food that you just ate? Yeah, I thought so. Right? You're dependent on those people that grew it. You're dependent on those people that sold it to you. Right? You're dependent upon, yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. And you're also dependent upon the air pressure. I mean, you think you need the oxygen to breathe. Yeah, that's true. But you also need the air pressure to keep your blood from boiling. If they removed all the air from the planet just like that, you wouldn't suffocate. You'd actually die a much more painful death because all the bubbles in your bloodstream would start boiling. And it would be most unpleasant. You don't think about the fact that you are actually part of the atmosphere. Or is it the atmosphere is part of you? Right? We are vastly interdependent with the whole of the universe. But we have this optical delusion, because we're mobile, of thinking that somehow we're a separate piece. And the Buddha is saying here, just look at everything in terms of dependently originated phenomena. If you look that way, you're not going to be finding any self, any entity that roams and wanders through the rounds of existence. There's just dependently originated phenomena rolling on. Now, of course, this raises the question of, hey, what about karma? Right? Because if you've got some entity, then that entity does a bad thing, then it's going to get its karmic resultants, right? I mean, even if it dies before it gets those karmic resultants, it's going to wind up in a bad place. I mean, it's going to, right? This is what we want to do. Balance the books. But if you look at the world, not in terms of entities, if someone does something that is bad, you've just made the universe worse. Somebody does something good, You've made the universe a bit better. If you can drop the idea of a self in terms of karma and just look at the fact that your actions are having results and those results, whether they come to fruition now or next week or many centuries from now, are going to change how the universe is. Maybe not in a big way, most of us don't get to change the universe in a big way. But if you do something positive, it'll change the universe ever so slightly in a positive direction. And if you do something negative, ever so slightly in a negative direction. There are karmic resultants. You just got to take it out of the realm of thinking it's me that's going to get it because the me is just simply a handy way of of referencing this mobile sensing device. So what are the implications for rebirth here? Well, since there's nobody here in the first place, (laughs) rebirth would take place with every intentional action. I think most of you are aware the Buddha said, karma, I declare, O monks, is intention. So your rebirth is taking place every time you make an intentional action, right? You have been reborn millions of times since you left your mother's womb in the fact that you have done intentional actions and they have a result that determines how the universe is going to unfold. If you do something wholesome, the universe unfolds in a more wholesome way. If you do something unwholesome, it unfolds in a less wholesome way. So this is what the Buddha is pointing to here. That looking at things in terms of dependently originated phenomena is a much more skillful way of looking at the world in terms of entities. Now, this is entitled, The Greater Discourse on the Destruction of Craving. Craving is tanha. We had that in the dependent origination. The Buddha defines craving to be of three types. There's kama tanha, craving for sense pleasures. Bhava tanha, craving for becoming. And vibhava tanha. And what we have 
so far in this sutta is the destruction of bhava tanha, right? Because sati, he wants to come back. We also have the destruction of vibhava tanha, you know, stop becoming. Well, you don't have to stop becoming if you've never been becoming in the first place, right? So that takes care of that. Now, as I said, this sutta has three parts. Part three is a completely different discourse and actually has nothing to do with dependent origination. But I'll put it in, I'll teach it to you just so you get a sense of the rest of the destruction of craving. This starts out with two paragraphs that seem a little out of place. The descent of the embryo takes place through the union of three things. The mother, the father, and the being to be born. Wait a second, I thought we just decided. Where did that come from? The, the word is Gandhava, which would be translated as celestial musician. And so when Westerners first encountered this, they thought, those crazy Buddhists, they think they got to, two people have sex and there's got to be a musician there <laughs> before they get a baby. If you have sex without the musician, you don't get a baby. Well, the Gandhava, though, is the being to be born. And uh, if you've got all three of those, then you get the embryo. And the mother carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. At the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. And then when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood, for the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline. What does this have to do with... I mean, it's like, this doesn't really have anything to do with craving or anything else. Maybe it has to do with what follows, so keep it in mind and I'll read you what follows. When one grows up and one's faculties mature, the youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, with forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire, provocative of lust. Okay, this has something to do with craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he lusts after it if, if it is pleasing. He dislikes it if it is displeasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with a limited mind. He does not understand as it actually is the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Engaged as he is in favoring and opposing whatever he feels, whether he feels pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does so, delight arises in him. Now delight in feelings is clinging. With clinging as condition, being comes to be, or becoming. With becoming as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pair, uh, despair, grief, pain, and suffering. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. A little bit of dependent origination thrown in here. But basically, what the Buddha is saying is that we get born, whether there's any celestial musicians present or not, and you're here, and your senses mature, and you start in interacting with the world, and you get pleasant feelings, and you like those, and you get unpleasant feelings, and you try and push those away, and you get neutral feelings, which you can safely ignore. And this is how we lead our lives, running towards the pleasant feelings, running away from the unpleasant feelings. It's almost like we got an instruction manual when we got here. You open it up, there's three instructions. <laughs> Seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. And that's how we run our lives. We are led around by the Vedana, running towards the pleasant ones, running away from the unpleasant ones. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out here. He goes on to talk about the same thing happening with each of the other four external senses. 
Then he starts in on the graduated training, the gradual training. A Tathagata appears in this world, accomplished, fully enlightened, and teaches the Dhamma, teaches the precepts, teaches guarding the senses, mindfulness and clear comprehension, being content with little, abandoning the hindrances, the jhanas. And then, coming out of the fourth jhana, uh, on seeing a form with the eye, one does not lust after it is pleasing. One does not dislike it if it is displeasing. One bides with mindfulness of the body, fully established, with an immeasurable mind, and one understands as it actually is the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom, wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. So what the Buddha is saying here is that by practicing the four jhanas, when one comes out, one is very equanimous and can look at the pleasing and not get caught up in it, can look at the displeasing and not generate so much aversion. One can see things as they really are. Having thus abandoned favoring and opposing, whatever one feels, whether pleasant, painful, or neutral, one does not delight in that feeling, welcome it, or remain holding to it. As one does not do so, delight in feeling ceases. With the ceasing of the delight comes the ceasing of clinging, ceasing of clinging, ceasing of becoming, ceasing of becoming, ceasing of birth, ceasing of birth, the ceasing of aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of dukkha. So this is basically addressing the other of the three cravings, the kama tanha, right? The seeking for sensual pleasure. And so somebody somewhere along the line took these two suttas and combined them into one, and this is what we have now. And then in order to stitch this all together. Bhikkhus, remember this discourse of mine as the deliverance in the destruction of craving. But remember the Bhikkhu Sati, son of a fisherman, is caught up in a vast net of craving, in the trammel of craving. That is what the Blessed One said. The Bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in his words. So basically what the Buddha is saying is that you deal with your bhava tanha, your craving for becoming, your craving for being somebody in this life and becoming something in the next life by looking at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. There's no solid anything to be found. And you deal with your kamatanha, your craving for sense pleasure, by calming and quieting your mind until it's very equanimous and you can see them for what they are without getting entangled in them. So this is the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. Questions? Comments? I have a a couple of uh, puzzlements that have to do with the uh, with the emptiness stuff that you've been talking about. First, is the this universe that you've been mentioning. Um, is this? Uh, it seems to me, is this something that's dependently arisen arisen to, or is this something that is there? You mean, is the world... No, the universe that you talked about, okay. that we are a part of. All right, we... this universe, is it infinite or not? Is it eternal or not? The Buddha said, don't go there. Yeah, but you were, <laughs> but you were, using, you were using the word, so... I... Right, yeah, the, the Buddha talked about the world, but he didn't talk about beginnings or, or infinite. I would say that everything we experience of this universe is dependently originated. But the universe itself, you would say? The Buddha would say, don't go there. And, okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to give an answer when he says, don't go there. No, no, but, but you presented that we, you know, that we, we are um, embedded part in the of universe. this universe. We're embedded in this universe, right, yeah, but exactly. But the universe seems to me to be a concept. 
Yes, of course. So it's, so it's, it's empty itself. Yes. Okay. It, would, it would be everything in the universe and the universe itself would all be empty. Yes. Right. So it's right. Not a, there's no thing that is the universe. Correct. Okay. And, and then the concept of deliverance of mind, which he, he right. um, was a phrase that showed up in the, in the text that you were reading. Right. Um, mind is also just a metaphor. It's not, there is no such thing. It's a handy way of referencing a collection of processes. Right, but it gets distracted if you think that, yeah. that something is delivered. If you think there's something that's delivered, yes. But right. there is deliverance in that the collection of processes stops making some of the more common stupid mistakes. Okay, so empty phenomena rolling on. There's no phenomena. <laughs> the phenomena, the empty phenomena that are rolling on are all empty, yes. Yeah, there's no, there's no thing at all you can point to and say this is a real thing. Right, so empty phenomena, there's, if there's no phenomena, there's... It didn't say there's no phenomena. The phenomena are empty. empty. I tell you what, the next talk is actually going to go into this in more okay. detail. Okay. I'll make sure we it get back seems, to you first. My, it, just, it just seems if, if the phenomena are empty, the rolling on is also empty. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can't find anything. Okay. That's, that, was, that, was, that was... Right, you can't find anything that's not empty. You can't find anything that's not dependently originated. That one. Yeah, we get it on the tape. So, Lee, you talk about that we're just part of the universe, and we think we're we're separate. Does the Buddha ever talk about that, or is that something that was added in the last who knows how many years? Yeah, I think within the last twenty-five years. <laughs> Yeah, th that sort of concept doesn't appear, but I have found that a useful concept for getting my head around some of the teachings that just sort of came at me as words that I couldn't make sense of. And so realizing that, okay, I'm certainly not the universe, this was pretty obvious, but I am a piece of the universe. I mean, I'm not separate from the universe. Seemed to be a, a useful way of thinking about it. Sometimes the time masters allude to that, that they'll say part of nature, but I don't think they say the whole being. But I've seen them use phrases like that. I don't see anything in the suttas that uses phrases like that, but yes. in trying to understand what I do see in the suttas, sometimes I come up with different concepts, like, you know, yeah. Uh, in this chain of causation, which is the mundane dependent ori origination, right. uh, what are the best places to intervene to prevent the chain? And I know you, for the, uh, the circle, yeah. uh, you mentioned between feeling and craving is a Correct. place. As a short-term strategy, the only place that's really going to be successful to work is between feeling and craving. So... There is a vedana, a feeling, and it's pleasant. And you need to recognize I'm experiencing a pleasant vedana and not let it run off into craving. So you've got, you've got some space in there. Not a lot. The more pleasant it is, the quicker the craving's going to set in. Right? But with mindfulness, there is a gap in there. And at times, you can actually experience something quite pleasant and that's it. You're just experiencing something quite pleasant and the craving doesn't set in. So that's the short-term strategy. The long-term strategy to uproot the problems totally is the ab abolition of ignorance. 
That's the knowing and seeing what's really happening. Then you see it, you become disenchanted. Being disenchanted, you become dispassionate. Being dispassionate, you're liberated. That's the long-term strategy. Okay, since Mike is over here and the hands is over here. Um, This isn't from the last talk necessarily, but maybe the whole day. You've talked about uh, necessary conditions. And a term that is often used with necessary conditions is necessary and sufficient conditions. Right. And uh, another term I want to insert into the the question, I guess, here is uh, inevitability. Inevitably leads to one or the other. You mentioned this a little bit here, that maybe you can have uh, pleasantness without having inevitably leading to the other. Right. If if that was not the case, there would be no way to stop the craving, because we're going to have the pleasantness because we left our senses hanging out in the environment. So the relationship between... Uh, old age sickness and death and birth, there's sort of inevitability of birth inevitably leads to death. Right. Birth is not a sufficient condition for death, but it is an inevitable outcome of birth. In other words, if it were a sufficient condition for death, you'd be born and you'd be dead. Right. But it's a sufficient condition such that you are going to be subject to death. Sufficient to assure that eventually. Yeah. Right. So there seems like there's a number of places in here that there's not inevitability. In fact, the majority are only necessary conditions. The contact leading to Vedana is a necessary and sufficient condition. Having contact is a sufficient condition that there'll be Vedana, and it's also a necessary condition. Uh, But I'm thinking you, you can have contact and have Novocaine, and there's no response. And you can have contact, uh, no. and you can do mental anesthesia with hypnosis and so on, and you can... Contact is the coming together of three things. The external object, the sense organ, and sense consciousness. Novocaine stops the sense consciousness. The signals don't get to the nervous system, so there's no sense consciousness. Same thing if you can do the mental anesthesia. You've managed to turn it off. You can get extremely concentrated when you're sitting. Really, really concentrated. And then the bell rings and you realize somebody forgot to turn on the heat. It's really cold in here. But you didn't experience the unpleasant Vedana of being cold because you were so concentrated. The consciousness of the cold wasn't getting through. So they're, they're the three that have to come together. It's prime for delusion, too, because oh, yeah. I don't sense. Right. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Therefore, yeah. I'm free or whatever. You know, it's, like, right. it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're about to say this because biologically, I understand the, the brain is getting zillions of signals and it can't pay attention to all of them. And so, Tan Jeff talks about this, so with concoctions what preferences we pick and choose what we let in. And with training and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of switching tracks a little here. So we have this uh, sutta here where he chastises sati, and then there are multiple suttas where he describes what happens to beings when they have good or bad karma, and they go to hell, and they go, you know it goes into great detail. Or somebody dies, like Bahia, and he sa- and he tells the monks, "Oh, Bahia was reborn in Tusita heaven, or or what have you." There's there's just so many references of um, rebirth, and you know the playing out of karma of individuals, you know. And is that just a a teaching for more primitive states of um, practitioners to lay people, for example, just to kind of get them to toe the line, or what, what is your take on this? <laughs> that was that was really well done. I almost got to the answer. I can stall. Okay, now, uh, what do you think, Anuruddha? What purpose does a Tathagata see when a disciple has died? He declares his reappearance thus. So-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place, and -and so-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place. Such 
Is that what you want to know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is Majjhima Nikaya 68. The Buddha is hanging out with a bunch of senior monks. Sariputta, Mahamogalana, Anuruddha. Uh, the list is back a few pages. And he is discussing some pretty deep matters with him. And he, at the beginning of that sutta, he declares the rebirth of a number of people. And then he says, what do you think? What purpose does a Tathagata see when a disciple has died and he declares his reappearance thus? Anuruddha has been a student of the Buddha for a long time and he knows the perfect answer. Venerable sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One. Guided by the Blessed One, have the Blessed One as their resort. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. Having heard it from the Blessed One, we will remember it. <laughs> so if the Buddha asks you a heavy question, you got the right answer. Anuruddha. It is not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people or for the purpose of flattering people or for the purpose of gain, honor, or renown, or with the thought, let people know me to be thus, that when a disciple has died, a Tathagata declares his reappearance, so-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place. Rather, it is because there are faithful clansmen inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who, when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state and that leads to their welfare and happiness for a long time. In other words, the Buddha is doing it because it increases the faith of those who have faith. He's not doing it to deceive anyone, right? Which, of course, would raise the question, you mean it's not true? And he's not doing it because people will give him alms food or robes or lodgings but to increase their faith. There's your answer, straight from the Buddha's mouth. The rest of the sutta goes on basically repeating this for the various places that people can go when they die and so forth. But it still begs the question. <laughs> I mean, does it... It still begs the question, I think. Does the, even though he's not doing it for the sake of deceiving, maybe he's deceiving for the sake of, of edifying... Well, he doesn't answer that part. <laughs> they're, they're que- they're, the tradition is that you know, the Buddha can never tell a lie and everything else, that he always was you know, right, straightforward, and, and then if he sometimes didn't say anything. But we have this. We have the story of Nanda, the Buddha's half-brother. People know this story? Yeah, okay. So the Buddha goes back to Kapilavastu a few years after his enlightenment, and... His half-brother doesn't really want to become a monk like all the rest of the princes. He's got a fiancé he's very much in love with. But at one point, the Buddha hands Nanda his begging bowl. And Nanda's like, and the Buddha starts walking off, and he's like, you know, taking his bowl back to him, and the Buddha just wanders off, and the next thing Nanda knows, he's a monk. But he's not happy being a monk. He wants to go back to his fiance, And so after a few weeks, he goes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, I'm leaving. I, I miss my fiance. I want to go back. And the Buddha says, Nanda, have you heard that I sometimes go to the Deva realms? Oh, yeah, yes, Venerable Sir, I hear that. Have you ever been to the Deva realms? Uh, no, Venerable Sir. And then he takes Nanda by the arm and takes him to one of the Deva realms. And he shows him 500 dove-footed nymphs. Okay? Now, I would think that... (laughs) I would think that the original actually went like, he takes Nanda by the arm, leads him away, and he has a guy-to-guy talk about the nymphs that can be seen in heaven, right? As opposed to taking him there. And after that description, or after that visit to heaven, he says to Nanda, Well, Nanda, what does your fiancé look like compared to these? And Nanda says, She looks like a monkey with her nose cut off. And uh, the Buddha says, Well, 
if you would like 500 of these nymphs, practice hard, and I guarantee you can have them. So Nanda starts practicing hard. He's serious. But the word gets out. He's practicing for the sake of nymphs. And the other monks make fun of him. So he leaves and he goes off into the forest and he practices even harder and he gets fully enlightened. And he comes back to the Buddha and he says, uh, Venerable Sir, you know about those nymphs? Never mind. <laughs> now, was the Buddha telling the truth? You know, if you do this practice, you can have 500 nymphs. The Buddha was interested in one thing, just one thing, the end of dukkha. And he was trying to get people to practice. He was not describing metaphysics. He didn't give a coherent metaphysical description of the universe. It's not there because he wasn't interested in that. He said what was necessary to get people practicing. We need to very much understand who he is speaking to what their outlook was. I mean, he spoke differently to Jains than he did to Brahmins, than he did to Jivakas, than he did to his own followers, than he did to his own monks. So who was the Buddha speaking to? What was their outlook? How deep was their current understanding? Where could he take them from where they were to a place on the spiritual path that was going to benefit them? And this is what the answers were that he gave. And they do contradict each other because he wasn't trying to describe the truth of the way things are in a metaphysical sense. He was trying to describe enough of the way things are to get people to start practicing. If they could practice, they could find out for themselves. Ain't nothing here you can glom onto. It's all empty impermanent phenomena rolling on. Let go and wake up. To return somewhat to a, what you said earlier this morning, in the suttas you've talked about today and many others, there are plenty of folks who've reached enlightenment. But as you said, we don't see a lot in the room here today. Why is there such a difference? <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that one. Uh, the Venerable Pawak, who's a jhana master in southern Burma, teaches the jhanas at a very, very deep level. I've heard it said that of the monks and nuns at his monastery, only about a third of them actually get to the first jhana. I've heard it said that the nuns do better than the monks. I've heard it said that those who do the very best are Chinese peasant women. Uh, we have rather complicated minds with huge egos. Maybe we got a lot more work to do. But I don't know. Cheryl? Yeah. Um, I think that what I'm going to ask is, um, is related to what you just said about... Uh, Um, I think the reason that that um, that I walked away from full enlightenment was when I was afraid of dying, and I I got to a place that I just saw death all around me, and I couldn't see through it. And that's why I knew I had more work to do. That's, that's why I had to come back. And, you know, I've, it's like I've made progress since that 
since that time. And it's like I, I recognize the steps. And um, um, well, I guess I'm just wanting some reassurance that, yes, Cheryl, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> yes, Cheryl, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah, if we have bhava tanha, craving for becoming, craving for existence, and we haven't gotten past the impact of death, then yeah, it's going to knock us back. But that doesn't mean we have to stop. We have to just keep going. If we've got any form of tanha, any form of craving, we clearly haven't seen deeply enough to become disenchanted and dispassionate. So what we need is more insight. The way to get more insight, get a quiet mind and examine reality. Try and examine reality from a less egocentric perspective. This is what the concentration actually does for us. So yeah, if you're practicing, you're doing the right thing. If you're taking an honest look at reality, that's what the Buddha's asking us to do. That's the thing that leads to the end of dukkha. Thank you. Yes, I needed that. Because you said something yesterday, and today also too, you made me see what I couldn't see before about, about kind of connecting the dots between the, there and here. Yeah. In my thinking, and that, that was what was missing for me. And so now I feel a flow that to that to that realm, right. <laughs> if you will, that, that opening is there for me. And now I can now I can see it. Um, now you can work with it, now you can try and integrate it. Yeah. Yeah. If you get a really deep insight, it takes time to integrate it. Yeah. Because <laughs> A really deep insight is different from our usual way of looking at the world. And it takes some work to integrate it and then be able to build on it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yes, thank you very much. Right. Okay. Is there a way to be very concentrated and <laughs> not have deep insights? Oh, yeah. There is. It, yeah. And that's what people mean by getting lost in, in the jhanas? Well, or I don't know whether could, that's what yeah. they mean, but that's a, that is a possibility. The Buddha had two teachers before he became enlightened. The first teacher taught him the seventh jhana, I presume taught him the first six as well, and thought that was it. I mean, when you're in the seventh jhana, there is no dukkha. There's nothing. And the Buddha comes out and goes, no, but when I come out, there's still dukkha. So he left, even though that teacher offered to make him a co-teacher. His second teacher taught him the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception or non-perception. said, that's it. When you're there, there's no dukkha. And the Buddha said, no. Well, it wasn't the Buddha then. Said Arthur Gautama says, no. When I come out, there's still dukkha. And he left, even though that teacher offered him the sole leadership of the sangha. So yeah, it's possible to just do concentration for concentration's sake and not take a look at reality afterwards. You get really concentrated, and then you get up and turn on the TV. Or you get up and go to work or whatever. So very definitely the Buddha is saying it's important to concentrate the mind and then with the mind thus concentrated, examine reality. Lee, I think you should tell people what you told me a number of years back, and I think all concentration teachers would say the same thing. You don't teach concentration, you teach the Eightfold Path. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. Yeah, the concentration by itself, well, it's kind of cool, but it's only one-eighth of the path. But it is one-eighth of the path. <laughs> you have the mic? Oh, behind you. 
you talked about Gandhab as uh, a being to be born. Right. The question I have is, is that a physical entity or does it have a mind, body, and consciousness? What I think is that that paragraph was inserted much later as Buddhism developed. And it's the origin of what is called rebirth consciousness. But I don't think that paragraph comes from the Buddha. It's so contradictory of what else is going on in the sutta. So my feeling is to just let that paragraph go and say, uh, I can't resolve its contradictory nature other than to think, this contributes nothing to my understanding of the rest of the sutta, and that probably it was inserted at some later point. So, yeah. I'm sorry, which paragraph is that? The one about the Gandhava, where you have to have the union of the mother and father and the being to be born. Um, when you were just talking about concentration and when you're talking about concentration I think it's important to talk about mindfulness and I'm curious to hear what you say because what I noticed is well I notice in my own practice but I notice the difference between the descriptions of the jhanas um, before the Buddha's enlightenment and after is the word mindfulness when he describes them in the suttas. He doesn't use the word mindfulness before enlightenment, but mindfulness is used at every stage of jhana after enlightenment. Uh, interesting. I had not noticed that. Uh, that would make sense, since mindfulness is what is, is the key element for seeing what's really going on. But I had not noticed that. Thank you. I'll take a look at it. Yeah, so I'm curious, from your kind of practice in teaching it and practicing it, if you have something to say about the role of mindfulness in jhana and concentration practice. Well, certainly you need to have mindfulness to generate what's called access concentration, the concentration necessary to be able to have access to the jhanas. To actually enter the jhanas, you need to be mindful of specific objects to sustain the jhana. For example, in the third jhana, there's sukha, which is probably more as a felt sense of contentment or satisfaction or wishlessness. And you need to be mindful of that in order to maintain it. Uh, but the real the real work of mindfulness comes in the post-jhanic state of mind. You come out of the jhana, and you have that mind that's concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability. And the directing and inclining the mind is being mindful of what's going on around you. So that mindfulness is absolutely necessary. I would also say that mindfulness is a prerequisite to any form of concentration. In teaching the jhanas, I find that the practice that is the most helpful one for being able to learn the jhanas is mindfulness off the cushion, right? That if you want to be concentrated on the cushion, you need to practice mindfulness off the cushion. So the bell rings, don't lose your mindfulness. Keep the mindfulness there. It keeps the concentration level up. It keeps you aware of what's going on so that you can sit down and get the concentration quicker back to the deeper levels. So yeah, it's a prerequisite and it's the essence of what this investigation is. So I'm curious, I'm going to split hairs with you a little bit. Okay. <laughs> is it actually a prerequisite or is it that you're advocating it as a prerequisite? Can there be... Jhanic concentration without mindfulness? I don't think so, because like one of the ways to get there is mindfulness of breathing, right? To generate the access concentration. So I think that just to get the access concentration, you've got to have mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of metta, 
mindfulness of the body scan, mindfulness of a mantra, mind, whatever your access method is going to involve mindfulness. So I don't think you could get there without it. And then related is mindfulness, does mindfulness play a role in the non-identification with the jhanic state, with the pleasure, the, the sukha, the pleasantness that arises? While you're in the state, that's not a problem. Because entering a state of deep concentration, the ego gets really quiet, goes sits in the corner. It's not a problem anymore so much. Coming out, mindfulness very definitely is to play a role. And to you know, see what really happened as clearly as you can. To be mindful, this was just a state that rose because of causes and conditions. That I'm not special because I got to the second jhana. Right? So yeah, mindfulness is, yeah, it's the key thing. Mindfulness shows up in more of the important list. I mean, everybody knows all the lists, right? You know, well, maybe you don't know them all, but you know there are a lot of lists. And mindfulness shows up in more of those lists than any other term. Thank you. I have one other thing I want to say or comment on, and it's the thing of um, identification or non-identification. And it seems the problem isn't in practice, because probably all of us have been able to experience moments of non-identification. The problem is more in thinking. <laughs> it's so common that we right. think, I am, I do this, I'm going there, you're giving this to me, and that's where we yeah. get the problem. Right. Mindfulness, I would say, means knowing what's actually happening, which would mean being here now. And if we're lost in the thought of, I was in the jhana, I was really good, we're back in the past playing with a memory. If you can be mindful, I'm back in the past playing with a memory in the present, that's a step in the right direction. But even better is, I'm sitting here in a chair asking a question or talking or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, very definitely. The semantic question, I guess. Behind you. You said you can't do jhana without mindfulness because you have to be thinking about something, but isn't that vitaka vichara versus sati? No, you have to be mindful of something. You have to, like, be mindful of the breathing. You don't have to think about the breathing. You have to find something... Well, in you have to do vitaka vichara to the breathing, no? No. <laughs> uh, vitaka and vichara in the suttas always and only mean thinking. And when it shows up in the definition of the first jhana, what the Buddha is saying is you haven't become totally absorbed in the first jhana and there is the background thinking that also occurs in access concentration. It does not mean initial and sustained attention until 200 years after the Buddha or later when it shows up like that in the Abhidhamma. Does that help? So basically all the Buddha is saying is when you're in the first jhana, you got piti and sukha going, but there's still some background thinking. To get to the second jhana, absorb into the piti and sukha experience, get quieter, Get your mind unified, and there won't be any vitaka vichara, no background thinking. I'm going to write a book on this. <laughs> Anything else behind you? That sounds different the way Tan Jeff talks about vitaka and vichara. It sounds what? Different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming in six weeks. We have, we have this recorded, what you said, so we will compare. Yeah, okay. Now, this is, this is what I found from reading and practicing. And yeah. he'll say this is what he found from reading and practicing. Exactly. And your job... Yeah, read and practice. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I started this out, no holding to fixed views. Yeah. I'm just trying to put out what I found useful. I definitely don't have a clue what's really going on, but I'd like to find out. Except that I have this hint. It ain't nothing but empty, dependently originated phenomena rolling on. So where does that not holding to fixed views, um, how, I mean, I'm interested in that. So where does that fit on the 
wheel of dependent origination, where does that come in where we insert that? Like, okay, I see I'm holding on to fixed views, I'm going to let go. Right. The wheel of dependent origination doesn't cover all of the Buddha's teachings. Where it would fit in would be between Vedana and craving. Okay? If you're holding on to a fixed view, you're craving to be right, to have understanding. Now you're clinging, <laughs> and that's the real holding. And guess what? It's going to lead to you becoming one who has this fixed view, giving birth to <laughs> this philosopher who's going to serve for dukkha. So, yeah, okay. it fits in there. But the, the way to prevent it not holding to fixed views is don't get caught in the craving. Okay, thank right. you. Okay, I think it's time for a break, followed by a sitting. So let's see, it's 5 till 3.